This is a business discussion, show business that is, Two entertainment veterans, now all the instructors are about to share their personal tales of Tinseltown and Las Vegas. We'll eavesdrop as they recall their encounters with some of the legends of rock and roll, the silver screen, and a young and growing medium called television. <laughs> we, got to, we got to see some stuff, you and I. Uh... Oh, it was fabulous. Coming up, Hollywood, once upon a long time ago. It's part one of a two-part series. Welcome to In Conversation, the Voices of Ollie. Ollie, O-L-L-I, is an acronym for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute located at and networked with the Palm Desert campus of California State, San Bernardino. Sue Cameron taught one of the most popular courses at Ollie, a class based on her book, Hollywood Secrets and Scandals. She is a journalist, talent manager, and insider with a capital I. Ms. Cameron is literally a child of Hollywood. My father was an entertainment lawyer, and my mother was a singer, a very good singer. She had her own show on local NBC radio in San Francisco, and Meredith Wilson was her conductor. Whenever I wanted something, my father, I meaning, oh boy, I'd love to meet Superman. He would take me to the set and I'd meet George Reeves or, oh, I love Ozzy and Harriet. And so I would go on that set. So yes, I've been on set since I was about eight. How cool. It was really great. Really oh, great. Yeah. Her companion in conversation is Frank Farino, a former television producer and executive with Dick Clark Productions, as well as the author of the poignant play about the last days of Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn, Madness, and Me. I came to California at the tender age of 22 from New York. I had gone right from college to work at ABC in New York uh, in the new sports division. And uh, after two or three years, my then boss called me into his office and said, uh, Frank, would you like to go to Hollywood? <laughs> and I said, to do what? <laughs> he said, to live, to work. They were expanding and they needed a staff director in the uh, Hollywood uh, studio, the news studio. And that's how I got to uh, California. And um, I got off the airplane it was January on my birthday. It was snowing in New York, and I stepped off the plane at LAX, and it was 78 degrees, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm home. This is the first time Frank and Sue have formally met, though as they are about to discover, their paths likely crossed many times. My first job was at KFWB Radio. They were uh -huh. starting a pop news newspaper called the KFWB Hitline, and I got to meet all the rock and roll stars because they would come to the uh, station to promote their records to try to get KFWB to play it. And so I, everybody was there. I'd walk in the lobby and Sonny and Cher were there. and we, I just got to know everybody. And then when they moved to, Sonny and Cher are a perfect example. When they moved to television, I was then the television editor of The Hollywood Reporter. And I would also start to cover movies. So wherever their careers went, mine went too. So I had a great foundation of very young stars who became more successful. And as they did, I did. And what was interesting is that being such a young kid, it was my job to interview celebrities. They were always quite a bit older than I was because they were already successful. So that's how I 
was basically adopted by Debbie Reynolds and Kim Novak and uh, Valerie Harper, the Nelson family, it just goes on and on. So I, I just had incredible access because they wanted to protect me. They could see how young I was. It was, it was a great time. I agree. And we, we crisscrossed a little bit because uh, after I got out uh, to California with ABC, <clears throat> at some point, I switched careers and I went from the news business to the rock and roll business and spent ah. 10 years with Dick Clark. And uh, that was a trip. <laughs> what did you do with Dick? Because I was on uh, Happening with Paul Revere and the Raiders on ABC Network for two years. Well, I was behind the scenes. I ran his syndicated radio division. No kidding. He had, he had a, uh, I produced and wrote a, um, a show called Dick Clark's Good Old Rock and Roll. Mm -hmm. And uh, that got on about, about 200 radio stations at that time. But I got to meet everybody. Uh, sure. It was, uh, I mean, my, one of my favorite moments was uh, in a hotel in Las Vegas. I went to interview Jerry Lee Lewis and I walked into his room and if you met Jerry Lee, he was just one of a kind. Mm -hmm. As I walked up to him, he had a big cigar in his hand and I looked and put my hand out to say hello. And he put two of his hands around my head and he said, quote, it's the first thing he ever said to me. How big a coffin you figure you'd need? Oh my God. <laughs> that was Jerry Lee. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was, uh, for a kid from Brooklyn, it was a great time. And, yeah. and, the and, and I think you'll agree with this. There was still, when I got, to, to, I got out in 1965, there was still a touch of old Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, my first... Uh, my first job, my first assignment at the Hollywood Reporter was to go to Adolf Zucker's 100th birthday party. He oh was the president God. of Paramount. Yes. And I could not believe what was before my eyes in terms of the, the movie stars. It oh, was, that was my first job. I mean, it was, it was, so I absolutely loved rock and roll and I loved music. To so I'm suddenly immersed with the mamas and papas and- um, yeah every single English act you can imagine. The Beatles bored me. I went to their press conference, then ended up having lunch with Ringo Starr, not Bright. Um, but to, uh, to see James Brown, uh, I love to dance like James Brown. And of course I, ha I had to interview him. So I started dancing in his dressing room in a Bullock's Wilshire knit suit, by the way, <laughs> with a handbag. And uh, he just couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe how I could dance. And he said to me, you're coming with me right now. We're getting on my plane. We're going to San Francisco. I go, oh, no, we're not. <laughs> All right. I have, a, I have a trivia question for you. Do you know who Walden Robert Casotto is? I certainly do. That's Bobby Darren. All right. <laughs> and Conchetta Francanero? Connie Francis. All right. Well, <laughs> I, I, knew, to, I knew Bobby really, really well. I got to know Bobby through Dick. I mean, we did a, we did a yeah. profile of him. Uh, as I recall, Bobby saw himself as the heir to the throne of Sinatra. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That I didn't know. I knew he was in the hospital, but yeah. I didn't know that I didn't know that he had died. I was told he went in because of a complication from dental surgery. Yes. What he really did was he didn't take the antibiotics Biotics. because he, he knew he was failing and he just wanted out. Yeah. Uh, 
I was lucky enough to go to his house. We loved music and he would fly me up to Vegas and we'd talk about his act and he played a lot of instruments. I play a lot of instruments. Yeah. And I went, I went to his house because when we were in Vegas and his opening number was for once in my life, but he put a horn, a horn uh, sound over it that he took the horns from Santana's Everybody's Everything. Now who uh, would know this? So <laughs> I go backstage and I go, oh my God, you used the Santana horns. And he, he just went, what? And he started hugging me and we just, I just saw him a lot. And he was getting ready. He really wanted to go back to Sandra D. I had dinner with him shortly before he died. Uh -huh. And that's what he really wanted. The two of them had looked at a house in Bel Air on Stone Canyon Road oh, to, wow. to go back together. Sandy's uh -huh. another story, speaking of Hollywood Blonde, such a, a terrible tragedy. Yes. Well, staying with Bobby for just a minute, do you know how he came to take the name Bobby Darren? Actually, I don't think I do. When he, uh, when he got the, the notice from the record company, they wanted to sign him. They said, uh, Walden Robert Casoto is not a rock and roll name. You got to find a name. So he went home. And that's another story. Um, he never knew the woman he was raised right. to believe was his sister was actually right. his mother. Right. Uh, but he went home to his mother and his grand and uh, his, his sister in his mind and said, I've got this contract. Let's go celebrate. We're going to go out to dinner. And they went out to dinner and went for Chinese food. And they came to this restaurant and in neon, it said Chinese Mandarin and the M-A-N of the Mandarin was out and it was flashing. Oh, wow. D-A-R-I-N. Oh, that's how fabulous. How, that's how he took the name Darren. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I liked him a lot and um, he went way too soon. Way oh, too soon. Tragic, tragic. He, I was, when he was taping the last Bobby Darren shows, yeah. People didn't know. I was on the set with him and people didn't know it. But after every song, they, they would have taped in segments. And there was an oxygen mach machine right behind the curtain. And yeah. after every song, he'd have to go back there and take oxygen before he could go on with the show. It, his drive and love of, of life yes. and, music, and his acting. Talk about Captain oh, yeah. MD. I wanted him to win an Oscar for that. No, he was he, a he he was an all-around incredible talent. Absolutely. He and Sammy Davis are the yeah. two who could do everything. Thing. Sing, dance, act, impressions, and play yeah. every instrument. Yes. Yeah, they um talking about Sammy it leads me to the rat pack, and that's another <laughs> that's another whole story. <laughs> oh yes. Vegas is now basically just canned oh. acts. Yes. It's, it's so tragic. I, I would fly up there almost every weekend in the 70s because that was when television stars had acts. Yes. And, you, and you could go down the strip uh, and I would go from Connie Stevens to Ann Margaret to Helen Reddy to Bobby, oh. Don yeah. Rickles, and we'd all hang out afterwards. It, it, uh, and I, I went to Las Vegas for Debbie Reynolds maybe 20 or more times. I mean, it was, wow. it was so much fun. And yes. I'm so sorry it's gone. I have a trivia question for you. Uh, we yes. were talking uh, about uh, the, the blondes and Lana Turner. Yes. Came up. Is the, is the uh, published story true? Was she discovered at, a, at the counter at Schwab's? She, no, 
she was not discovered at the counter of Schwab. She was covered, discovered at the counter of something called the high hat, a high uh, hat. The top, the top hat. Top hat, top hat. It was across from Hollywood High. That's true. Uh, fortunately, through uh, Cheryl Crane, I got to uh, meet Lana and go out to Ooh. dinner with her. Ooh. And that was really interesting because what I've noticed is all of these movie star women, I don't care whether it's Elizabeth Taylor, Debbie <clears throat> Reynolds, Nicole Kidman, uh, whatever. When you become a popular person, and it's based on your looks, they don't, they, eventually they notice that you can act or you can't act, yes. but initially it's based on looks. When you go out with them, they have to become another character. They have, to, they can't, I'll talk about Lana in a second, but first one day Kim and I were, at, were shopping in Carmel when she lived in, in Carmel. We were at a, a, a Bullock's store there. And I just kind of made a joke and I, I said, nobody's recognizing you. I said, isn't this fascinating? And she goes, no, I'll show you how it works, watch. And all she did was stand up a little straighter and, and develop a movie star attitude. Oh, wow. And everybody, everybody came over. All she did was just a physical thing. And Lana Turner, when we went to pick her up at, at her apartment in Century City, and she really became Lana Turner. The hair was gorgeous. She was wearing something white. She was covered in jewels. We were going to a supper club in Beverly Hills. And she got in the car and kind of sighed and I, I hadn't even, we, I, we just met in the car and I looked at her and I said, yeah, it's showtime, right? And, <laughs> and she went, yeah. And so we, we pulled up in front of the restaurant and she, Lana Turner got out of the car. Lana was not in the car, but Lana Turner got out of the car. And she was Lana Turner all the way till we sat at the table. And then about five minutes in, I, I said to her, it's okay now, just have a drink. And <laughs> she just started laughing. I think this is why these people like me because I just saw them for who they were. Who they and were. It, it was just like, whatever, sit down and have a drink. You, you, don't, you don't really think about that as a fan, somebody who just goes right. to see everyone's screen. But uh, they do have to live another kind of life. Well, you can't be who they see you on screen 24 seven. Or, or you'd go nuts. Oh, you go nuts. Yeah, yeah you no, go that's nuts. a good point. Elizabeth good Taylor point. spent three years in bed just eating and watching TV and toward the end of her life and Debbie Reynolds would go over. They, be, they made up uh, a uh, long time ago. They, they were well, on, um, it was an accident. They all found themselves on the Queen Mary. Uh, it was Richard, Richard Burton and Elizabeth and Debbie and I guess Richard Hamlet. And Debbie oh, saw that they, that they were uh, on board and invited Elizabeth to the cabin. They had not spoken since 1958. Wow, all and, they needed uh, was Eddie Fisher. <laughs> exactly. So they came, Elizabeth came over and, and the four of them started talking and the two of them, Debbie and Elizabeth, they just started laughing going, boy, what a schmuck. Look what we did. <laughs> that was the words they said, what a schmuck. And um, so Elizabeth and Debbie became very close. So toward the end of Elizabeth's life, Debbie would go over almost every week and they would sit in bed and uh, the butler or whatever it is would bring them hot fudge Sundays, and they would watch movies, watch uh, DVDs um, oh, wow. on the TV. And, yeah, almost every Sunday. Oh, so oh, cool. you have to find people 
who are, it's, it's helpful if you're a big Hollywood star to find another big Hollywood star who gets the issues and you can just hang out with them. Angie Dickinson, one of my favorite, favorite yes, people. Yes, she's spectacular. I, I got to spend a little time with her when she was married to Burt Backrack. Uh-huh. Uh, because I was doing a special on Backrack. Uh, he was not one of my favorite. Oh, person. nor mine. No, he, he was a very talented man. Can't take Extremely. that away. But uh, I love her. I absolutely oh. Angie, Angie is really great because she, she is a movie star who understood that it really was her job to go out and show up at premieres and, and support the industry that she loved that supported her. Yes. She, uh, it's not so easy her, for her to do it nowadays, but I mean, she did that for years and years and years uh, out of respect, not out of duty. A uh, very no, special I, person. Yeah. Uh, Bert, on the other hand, when we were doing all the interviews, uh, at one point, they were, they were living at that time up in Benedict Canyon, I believe, uh, at a rather large home. But then they also had a place at the beach, a, a small place uh, on the sand. And uh, Bert said, we're gonna, you're going to have to uh, come out and finish the interviews out there because I've got to do this or that. So in any case, I got invited to the, uh, the little beach cabin, and it was a it was a summer day, and it was very hot. And I arrived there, and Angie opens the door and lets me in, and she was just delightful. Mm -hmm. And I have my little tape recorder, want to sit, and, and Bert says, "No, no, no, we're going out there." And he points to the uh, the beach. I said, "We're going out there." Have water. The water, and you know you can hear the surf going, and I know this is going to be an editing nightmare. Right. Right. But he, that, that was it. And so we go outside and he literally walked outside with me. He was in a bathing suit and a, and a shirt. I came dressed because I thought right. I'm going to interview Bert Backrack. And he, he, we sat out there and for a couple of minutes and we're recording, it was a little, those days, the little uh, cassette recorders. And uh, he said, I, I'll be right back. And he went back in the house and I'm sitting out there and it's hot. And I can see him through the, through the, the glass, the window. And he went in and he poured himself a drink. <laughs> he took mm. the drink. And then he came back out and never said to me, <laughs> are you hot? Are you dying? Are you, do you need a And that's my memory. Of Narcissist. I, yeah, I don't was, have much uh, good to say about him, except that I really just love his music. Well, you can't not. You can't No, not. I do. And I his, writing, his writing partner, background, Hal David. Yes. You ne nobody ever. You never hear anyone mention Hal David, and Except without for Hal, Mrs. David, which is really, which is really a shame because that's very annoying. Oh uh, yeah. Same thing happened. Norman Lear never mentions Bud Yorkin. It was Bud Yorkin. Yorkin who had the idea for All in the Family. Well, I, I think, we, we, you and I, were very fortunate to have, have seen an era, uh, and and a, a cult of people, that I I don't know will come back again. In the, in oh, it never will. Yeah. I, I, it, it won't. The world has changed, has changed too much. The yes. social media has destroyed it. Yes. We'll never see that again. Uh, I, I've thought about things I haven't thought about in years and I know. years and years. I've yeah. had a ball with you. This is great. Oh, good. Frank Farino, Sue Cameron.
Two Voices of Ollie, Remembering Hollywood Once Upon a Long Time Ago. <laughs> part 1. In Part 2, these entertainment veterans will engage in a lively conversation of some iconic Hollywood blondes, Marilyn Monroe and Kim Novak in particular. Both know something whereof they speak. Kim Novak called Sue Cameron her best friend, and, of course, Frank authored the play Marilyn, Madness, and Me. Here's a quick preview. I know a lot of stuff about her that maybe people don't know. Do you have any opinion whether her, her death was accidental, suicidal, or something other than that? I believe 100% that she was murdered. 100%. Mr. Farino is now working on a play about another Hollywood femme fatale, Ava Gardner. I'm in the midst now of trying to do a similar approach uh, to Ava Gardner. And it's not coming as easily as, uh, as the Marilyn did, although Ava and Marilyn did share uh, some Hollywoods, if you would. <laughs> Sounds intriguing, right? And Ms. Cameron is currently in the throes of writing a new Hollywood tell-all. This one is not as nice. <laughs> Hollywood, Hollywood Secrets and Scandals was really about uh, my showing the public the true love that I had for the people who are and were my friends and what their lives were really like. There are people in Hollywood that don't necessarily deserve that love. So I'm not gonna call it a bitchy book because it's a combination because I'm writing about more people that I love, but I'm also throwing in some, some tasty tidbit stories. So it has Ew. a slightly different essence. I'm about halfway through with it. This has been In Conversation, The Voices of Ollie. Our thanks to Cal State San Bernardino in Palm Desert, along with communications study professor Lacey Kendall and her media students. This podcast was produced for Ollie by Lou Gorfing. And I am Dr. Arlette Poland.